Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. It's, it's unusual for me to uh, put any kind of a, a Christmas twist on a Christmas message. I usually just kind of blow through. I think, um, I, I remember I preached on the day of the Lord on Mother's Day one time. I just, you know, I just don't, I just kind of usually stay with whatever I'm on. And I am going to do that tonight. I'm going to stay on uh, healing where we've been for the last um, several weeks. It's our fourth week on the issue of healing. And, uh, but I've just got a few things that have just been stirring in my heart this week. And I think it's from the Lord because Isaiah 9, without any kind of planning, is the verse that they were isolating. I don't know if you guys noticed that during the worship tonight. And I leaned over and talked to Karita, Karita and I said, hey, Karita, uh, that's the verse I'm preaching from tonight. And she goes, oh, yeah, well, it's the verse I'm doing in the children's ministry. I said, oh, I like this. <laughs> so apparently the Lord is saying something about Isaiah 9. I love when he does that. And so uh, let's pray again, and uh, we'll, we'll get into this. Jesus. Lord, you are wonderful. I'm asking, Lord, that by your spirit you would come. I love you, Lord. I love you because you, you hear prayer. Your ear is attentive to the prayer of the righteous, and you delight in my prayer. So God, tonight I'm asking that you would release revelation on us. You would release the spirit of wisdom and revelation in this house. The word of the Lord would come to bear upon us. The truth of the word, it would pierce our hearts through. God, we want to come to faith. We want to come to understanding in the scriptures. I'm asking, release revelation to us of the cross, of the power of the cross, and of the brilliance of your son. We want to know your son. I want to know your son. Come, Holy Spirit, and do what you love to do. Magnify Jesus tonight. Oh, we love you, Lord. Jesus name everybody said amen okay Isaiah 9 the uh, familiar passage uh, it's a, a Christmas song written out of Isaiah 9 verse 6 I'm not sure how these verses came to be predominantly about a Christmas idea because they're they're really uh, so the, what's in these verses is so much broader than simply the coming of the Lord, the first coming of the Lord. I mean, it extends all the way through the millennium, and, and what's, what's unveiled in these verses is really way broader than the uh, Christmas story. And, um, and it's just, you know, you kind of, you know, you hear, the, you hear the Bible verse and a song, and you kind of chalk it up, you know, and you go, well, that's just the Christmas verse, but it's far more than that. And I, as I was meditating on these verses this week, I was like, I mean, my heart was just coming alive. I mean, the idea that the prophet Isaiah says there's a child going to be born and his name is Everlasting Father. I mean, that's unbelievable. That's just outrageous to the Jewish mind. There's a, a baby that will be born, and his name will be Everlasting Father. There's going to be a man who will be all God and all man. That's what, that's what Isaiah was saying, and that was unthinkable to the Jewish mind. And then it says, and of the increase of his government, there will be no end. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was thinking about that, and I've spent hours thinking about that over the years, how do you get a government that never ceases to increase? Seems like at some point in time, everybody's in. And we know that, biblically, that everybody will be in, yet his government continues to increase beyond that. I and mean, he's talking to us about mysteries, 
of ages that are to come. So let's just look at this. I love these verses. They're so powerful. I had a, I had a powerful uh, prophetic uh, word come out of this, these verses about the zeal of the Lord performing his will and, and accomplishing the house of prayer. And so I, these are just, I'm so fond of verse 6 and 7. But verse 6, it says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. <laughs> His name will be called Wonderful. So I was looking at this, and I'm looking at the, uh, the first uh, two phrases there. Unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. A child is born unto us. That, that gives us real clarity into the reason why Jesus came to the earth. Why, why God put on flesh. He was born for us. He was given, he was a son given for us. He, he, his whole purpose was to live a given life. Now think about this. Every baby that's born, every child that's born, is born with a, uh, a, a, you know, a, a sense of a future. I mean, if you ever walk through the, uh, the new baby uh, department, whatever, in the hospital, and, and you look through the window... And you see all those little babies in there. I mean, I've done it three different times because I had, you know, got, had three. Well, my wife did. I just coached. But, uh, you know, we got, and so you go in there and you look through and, and you see all these little babies, brand new. I mean, just, you know, they're just sweet. And you, and you look at them and you just, I mean, I just, I just dream about what are they going to be? You know, what, what is their life going to be like? And, and every child that's born has this sense of future and destiny and and wonder, and you know, I look at my own, and I and I and I, I was looking at uh, one of my boys' faces the other night, and I was thinking, what are you going to look like when you're 25? Just staring at him, you know, and just thinking to myself, what what are you going to look like, man? Because you're good looking now, but wow, man, you're. I mean, just I mean, I'm just you know, as the father looks and delights over us, I was just feeling the delight over my son. I was just oh, and the and the the vision of who he was going to be, who he's going to be. And uh, every baby that's born is born to live, born to live a full life, born with destiny. There is not an accident under all heaven. I mean, there has never been a baby that was an accident. Everyone was dreamed of in the heart of God from eternity past to live their life in this age with destiny from heaven. Never has there been an accident and everyone was born to live, yet it's clear from the verses right there, unto us a son is given, and he is given to us to live a life that was given. And the truth becomes this, that Jesus was actually born to die. Well, every other child that's ever been born was born to live. Jesus was born to die. The writer of Hebrews says that he came to do the will of the Father. It was written in the book of the Lord that he came to do all the will of the Father. And it was the Father's will and the Father's desire that Jesus would come as a lamb to be slain. He was born to die. From the moment he broke his mother's womb, he was born to die. God puts on flesh becomes a man with the express purpose of dying. And that thing started weighing upon me. Every other child that's ever lived was has been born to live. Yet Jesus was born on a collision course to be a lamb for the slaughter. He was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Every other child is born to live. He's born to die. Unto us, a son is given. He's given. Jesus, given for us. I started letting that weigh upon me. You know, he said, no one takes my life. He goes, I lay it down. 
He was clear about his focus. He was clear about his purpose. There was a time when they tried to kill him, and he decided, you know, it's not my time yet. And, and the Lord would deliver him. He walked through the crowd. A couple different times they tried to murder Jesus before it was time. And Jesus said to Pilate, he says, you know, you would have no authority over me unless it was given to you from heaven. He goes, right now I could call a legion of angels to come and deliver me. He's so clear about this point. You know, I just, it's just the most unthinkable thing to me. God becomes a man. God, the uncreated, becomes a man, puts on flesh. And he's born to be slaughtered. God becomes one of us. And that is just, I mean, when you lock into that for a moment and meditate on the truth of that, the ridiculous humility of, of, of the Godhead, he's uncreated. He doesn't have a maker. The son is begotten pulled from the side of the Father, but never created. Coexistent, co-equal with the Father. The Son becomes a human being. The ridiculous humility of it. I mean, it is, I mean, it is just enough to make you just bow down. I mean, God became a man? And it would be enough if he, think about how humbling it would be when he puts on flesh just to be the ruler of all the ages. Like that would be enough of, of a ridiculous humility. He's uncreated. He lives in perfection. The songs in heaven are perfect. They never miss a note. They don't sound like our songs, I promise you. You know, we, we get moved by the singer and we go, oh, so good. The angels are going, is it over? I mean, like, is it over? They're trying. You know, our best is rough. And God loves it. The Bible says he has to humble himself to behold his creation. To look at what he made, he, it takes an act of humility on the part of God. Now think about that. Everything is that much beneath him that to even look at what he's made, it takes an act of humility. And then he puts on flesh. He's, and he, he could have come as the sovereign ruler of the universe. And I just, I love this thought because, and I know I, I say it often, but I just, he could have come riding two cherubim in flaming fly, fire, spoken, and everybody on the planet could have heard him audibly, and he could have demanded everybody to bow down all at once. And it would have been really humiliating. <laughs> but instead, he's born as the weakest of humans. He's born as a baby. And he's, God was an infant, he was an infant, fully dependent. God was an infant, fully dependent on his parents. Like, what is that? The, the, Hebrews 1 tells us that the worlds were created by Jesus, through Jesus. The son who created everything was an infant? Needed to be fed, needed to be changed? And he's not born in the palace. He's not born with the, you know, the palace nurses and midwives and everybody serving him. He's born in a barn. A barn. Not a, not a nice barn. A barn. There's no room. And he's born in the barn where animals eat. God's born in a barn where animals eat. The most scandalous thing has happened. God became a man. And he's so humble that he didn't come to rule the first time he came. He came to be slain. 
a son is given. It's a son given. Given to us. He's a baby that was born to die. And it says his name is wonderful. His name is wonderful. You know what I find? The more that I meditate on who he is, the more that I consider who he is, the more my heart comes alive. Because in him, we live and we move and we have our being. Millions of dollars won't give me life, but he will. When I meditate on him, I get happy. No, I, I mean, it, it gives me life. In him, we live and we move and we actually have our being in him. So when I meditate on who he is, all of a sudden I find myself invigorated. I come alive. All, these th- all the things of earth, you know, they lose their glimmer. They lose their glamour. But he invigorates my heart. My soul comes alive. Why? Because he's wonderful. He's wonderful. He's not sort of good. He's wonderful. Jesus is wonderful. I'll tell you a funny story. I remember a friend of mine and I were doing a, uh, we were doing a drama on a missions trip in in, uh, Guatemala. And we were doing it to the Carmen song, The Champion, if you're familiar with that. A little old, but basically in the song, there's a boxing match or something between the devil and Jesus. So my friend um, is a really good-looking guy. I mean, just tall, dark, and handsome. Well, he was Jesus. I was the devil. Okay. So, So what would happen is I would get all painted up, and I was the devil, and I would beat him up, and he would die. And then at the end of the song, it counts backwards, 10, 9, 8, and then, he, then Jesus is alive at the end of the song. Well, one time we did it, we did it at this girls' school. With about 200, 200 young girls at the school. And, uh, and, you know, they were, you know, the girls were glued because uh, my friend is really good looking. And, uh, and for some reason, that day he decided to wear a tank top rather than a T-shirt. So it just sort of compounded matters. I don't know. So he dies, and then when he gets resurrected, I mean, it is like a Beatles concert. They're like, ah, yes. And so we're we're trying to minister the gospel, but we're just like, you know, we're having to like get bodyguards in place and stuff. And I remember the pastor's wife gets up, and she just goes, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna use this. She goes, I'm gonna use this to preach the gospel. And she gets up. She goes. Now, isn't Jesus wonderful? Now I go, yes! And she gives, a, she gives a gospel presentation. How many want to get to know Jesus? All the hands go up. Isn't he wonderful? <laughs> but he is. He's so wonderful. My friend's a pretty good guy, but Jesus is wonderful. I started thinking about it. He's what is wonderful? What is full of wonder? What is that? He, he is the uh, highest order of human that's ever lived. Jesus. He's the superlative in every category. In every category, in every attribute, he's the, he is the superlative. He's the most loving. He's the most beautiful. He's the most intelligent. He's the most patient. He's the most powerful. He's the most royal. He's the most regal. The most charismatic. The most honest. The most joyful. The most generous. The most merciful. The most compassionate. The most humble. The most peaceful. The most zealous. The most faithful the most kind, the the most gentle, the most tender, the most noble, the most wise, most bold, most wealthy. He's the most wonderful. He's wonderful. And when I think about him, when I meditate on him, my heart is full of wonder. It's full of life. And then when I put it in perspective to understand that he was actually born to die, 
I mean, born to die. I, <laughs> I'm humiliated in, by his humiliation. You know? I mean, I'm crushed under the weight of the truth of the humiliation of Jesus. He's born to die. So let's flip over to Isaiah 53. I'm going to tie this into healing, but I've just been meditating on how wonderful he is this week. And I'm just, I'm just touched with it. I'm touched with the truth of the wonderful one, the one whose name is wonderful. Isaiah 53 describes hundreds of years, about 750 years before Jesus, Isaiah describes to a T the finality of the purpose for which he came. Isaiah gives us detailed description, not only of what's going to happen, what was going to happen to this one whose name is wonderful, but the spiritual implications of it. He actually, the theology that Isaiah gives us regarding Messiah and the divine exchange of punishment that Messiah was going to take for liberty that we were going to receive, the theology of it is, is stunning. When you get under the, the verses a little bit, you go, I can't, this, is, this is, wow. And Isaiah is unwrapping the truth of what Messiah would have to go through for liberty to, to, to be released to those who would believe in him. And so in verse 4, let's just pick up the familiar verses. It says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried away our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried away our sorrows. And that little next, that next phrase is just interesting. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. You know, Isaiah says that this coming Messiah would be beaten mercilessly. He describes it here and in other verses. And, and uh, just a couple chapters earlier, he describes that, they would, that the Messiah would give his face to those who rip out the beard. I don't know if... if uh, you know, any of you men have ever been like sort of trimming your beard and you get one little, you know, kind of hair caught and it goes ping. And I mean, you're like, ow, I'm, you know, out for the season because I, you know, got a hair ripped out of one hair ripped out of my face. They, Jesus actually allowed them to just torture him, to rip every bit of his beard from his face. When they were finished, doing that, his face would have been a bloody, raw mess. The aftermath would have been bad enough, but the pain of actually going through that. One little hair ripped from your face is very painful, but to go through your whole beard just being torn from your face. He said, I give my face to those who rip out the beard. And, and so Isaiah gives us these... These phrases, and he says, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. What's he saying? He's saying that the Jews who are going to inflict this punishment upon Jesus were going to think of Jesus as one that God was punishing because he was an evildoer. He goes, we esteemed him as stricken and smitten by God and one who is afflicted. In other words, while they were beating him, while the, the Romans were beating him, and while the, the Pharisees were, you know, cheering with glee as God was being tortured to death, what was going through their minds was, 
He deserved it, and this is God doing it to him because he's being punished. He is one who is afflicted. I mean, can you imagine the haughtiness of humankind? He deserved it. How did they say it when he was on the cross? He saved others. Why can't he save himself? If you're really the son of God, come down. We esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. They thought he was getting punished because he was a sinner, not comprehending that he was getting punished. And it was the father that was doing it, but it was because they were sinners. (laughs) And it says, surely he's borne our griefs and he's carried away our sorrows. Now, the, the Hebrew word for griefs... I don't have any idea why the translators translate that word griefs right there because throughout the rest of the Old Testament, that word appears 24 times and 20 times it comes up as sicknesses. Virtually every other time it appears in the Old Testament is talking about sicknesses. Surely he has borne our sicknesses. And that word sorrows we find that the verse is quoted by Matthew in Matthew 8, verse 17. And when Matthew quotes this verse in Matthew 8, 17, he, he, descri- he describes people getting healed and demon-possessed people getting set free. And he says this in verse 16 and 17. He says, When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with the word, and he healed all who were sick. What? That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Himself took our infirmities, and he bore our sicknesses. So the word sorrows, Matthew, a Jew, understood that word to mean sicknesses. Some would try to make what Jesus went through on the cross have nothing to do with physical healing, and that's why I'm making the point of this. That's why I'm driving that point home, that the issue of the, the uh, brutalizing of Jesus physically, while it did pay for our sins, it absolutely paid, and, and, and more than paid, he bore it for us, the issue of sickness upon himself. There is a divine something happening that is, with every blow that Jesus was taking, the Lord was taking an entire generation of believers and their sicknesses, and he was placing those sicknesses upon Jesus. With every bruise, God was doing a, a divine transfer so that believers could have this promise and the, the reality, not just the promise, but the actuality of healing in this age. I'm thinking about this. This baby that was born to die, he could have died for our sins. He could have died with one spear through the heart and it would have been over in an instant. But instead, he's brutalized for like 24 hours. And he dies on a cross in one of the most torturous, fearsome ways to die in that, in that time. The crucifixion was, I mean, it was just demonic, really. Why would God, he can die any way he needs to. He can die for sins. It could be one spear through the heart and he could be, he could be dead and he would have spilled his blood for sins. Why does God have to get beat up all night long? For our sorrows, for our sicknesses for our infirmities. He actually chooses to go through the brutalizing of his own body so we can be healed. He actually chooses it. I mean, he doesn't have to, but he does. He buys it for us. And so I, I looked at the verse and I, and, and I realized this, that there's four distinct things that happened to him that bought four distinct areas of deliverance and healing for us. Four distinct things that happened to him that took care of us in the areas of sin and sickness. And so let's just just look at these for a moment. It starts off and it says, He was wounded for our transgressions. 
wounded. That word wounded is literally pierced. And that word transgressions is literally rebellion. He was pierced because of a rebellious people. When the nails go through Jesus' hands and they go through his feet, what he's doing is he's taking the punishment and, and he's paying for every rebellious human act of sin. We don't comprehend the crucifixion very well, but, uh, you know, he was pierced in his hands, but we don't understand that uh, the Jewish hand would, would go past the wrist and, and down somewhere here in, in, in the arm. So when it says hand, it includes about this much down the arm because they tell us, historians tell us, if they put a spike through the hand of Jesus and put him on the, the wooden cross, that the, the weight of the body would rip right through the hand and it would come out through the uh, thumb and forefinger area. So instead, they put the arm on the cross, they drive the spike through, and it lodges between the two bones in the arm, and that's how the one that was crucified could stay on the wooden cross. So he's pierced through in the hand, which is really the wrist area, and he's pierced through in the foot, and what they tell us is that the way the crucifixion would work is they would take the spike, they would put the, the feet right on top of one another, and they would drive it through the front they would have the feet right on top, and they would drive it through the front where the, where the ankle joint is. It would go out the back of the ankle, go into the front of the other ankle joint, out the back of it, and nail both feet to the cross. When they would take that cross, and they would hoist up the one that they, because they'd nail them on the ground, then they would hoist them up, and the cross would drop down in the ground. They had to have a, a sufficient depth for the bottom of the cross to be able to bear the weight of a person and the wood for it to be able to stand. So that cross would sometimes drop two to four feet, boom, down into the ground. And when it did, the shoulders of the individual on the cross would become dislocated instantly by the, by the jar of that, of that pressure. So for the, on, the only way for that individual to be able to breathe then, because they would be dislocated and the pressure upon their diaphragm and on their lungs, they, they would be, they would be um, suffocating. The only way for the individual to breathe would be to press on the uh, spike that was in their foot. They have to lift up, get a breath, and come back down. Lift up, come back down. He was pierced for our transgressions. He could have been put to death instantly. He could have been poisoned. But instead, he looked on a rebellious humanity whom he fell in love with, whom he's been in love with since eternity past. The very dream of his heart. And he says, no, I will be pierced for all the rebellion. I will pay for it. For all the rebellious sins, I will pay for it by being pierced. I was thinking about it. You know, the hands and the feet, they represent our actions. It's, it's what we do and, and where we go. Every time he said, hey, come here, we go, no, I will go here. He was pierced through the feet. And every time he said, hey, don't touch that, and we say, no, I want it. He was pierced through the hands. He took a piercing because of me and you being rebellious. God, the baby that was born to die, the son that was given to us. Oh, I love him. His name is wonderful. And then it says he was bruised for our iniquities. And, and bruised literally means just beaten. He was beaten mercilessly beaten for every kind of sin. The iniquity is the unintentional and the intentional. He covers it all. He takes care of the rebellious acts with the piercing and with the bruising and the beating that he takes upon his body, he takes care of every kind of sin, the one you do intentionally and the one you didn't even know about. I don't know about you, but I, 
I think I have a lot of sins that I didn't even know about. I, and I know because the guy goes, hey, man, when you did that, that like crushed my heart. I go, oh, I didn't even know. Like I'm the record setter for unintentional sins. I'm like the step on the toes without even meaning to guy off the chart. The, this one, this one, I started thinking about this. I was going, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Because I am so the one that blows it without even trying. <laughs> I can have my mind totally set on being holy and blow it like unbelievably. If he doesn't take care of the unintentional sins, I'm lost. <laughs> That's my point. And so when I looked at this, I said, oh, thank you. See, Matthew 26, 67 and 68, it says that they spat in his face and they beat him. They spit in his face and they beat him. They beat God. Others struck him with the palms of their hands, saying, prophesy to us. Who struck you? Why did he have to prophesy to him? Because they had taken a bag and put it over his head so he couldn't see. Or a blindfold and wrapped it around his eyes so he couldn't see. And they would hit him and mock him. Was he upset about that? No. Because he was bruised for every unintentional thing that we didn't even realize we were doing that was an offense to a holy God. He took a beating because he was in love. The most noble, kindest, most gentle, most charismatic, the wisest one allowed his own creation to beat him mercilessly. Why? Because he loved us. And he wanted to pay for us. With every strike, with every mock, he was, there was a divine exchange happening. Every hit on his head was providing for every time that I would sin without even knowing it. I don't know how God does that, but he does. And that's how it worked. Then it says this phrase. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. Another way to say that is, his peace was chastised so we could have peace. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. He was tormented and his peace was chastened. It was beaten up. His peace was chastened so we could have peace. We don't really realize this, but historians will tell us that the crown of thorns that they weave together and they put on his head, those weren't, you know, we, we think thorns, we think a rose bush, we think a little thorn. These were Middle Eastern thorns, two and three inches long. When they wove together the vine of thorns and they put it on his head, they began to beat him in the head with a rod. That's what the Bible tells us. And they were beating him in the head with the rod to drive the thorns into his skull. And some historians believe that those were poison thorns, that when they penetrated the skull, they were releasing poison into the wounds, causing the poison to go into the, the brain and causing Jesus to experience you know, unique uh, you know, maladies in his mind, torments and anxieties. Where he was losing grip on what was happening because of the poison that was uh, permeating his skull. So you've been beaten all night. You've been mocked and spit upon. You've been, you know, brutalized. And then they drive poison into your head. And you start to lose consciousness in your mind. Why would God allow that to happen? So you could have peace. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. 
When they twisted the crown of thorns, they put it on his head. This is what Matthew 27, 29, and 30 says. 27, 29, and 30. When they twisted the crown of thorns, they put it on his head, and they put a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him, and they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. See, our peace, when he says, I'm going to give you peace not like the world gives, he knew exactly what was going to happen. He knew that he was going to be chastened in the area of his own peace, and he was going to create a divine exchange. He goes, I'm going to give you peace like the world doesn't give. He knew he was going to give his own peace to us through his own sacrifice. And then finally, the one that we're, we're familiar with, we're familiar with all of them, but how familiar are we? How familiar are we with the one that's wonderful? I need, I need to be more familiar with him. And when I look at what he did, I go, what, what is this I've gotten into? Who is, who is God? Who are you? Wonderful. So the last one is, by his stripes, we're healed. By his stripes, we are healed. I talked about the Roman scourge a little bit. I, want, I just want to go through it for a moment, just so we get the picture. The Roman scourge was a standard form of punishment that the Roman legion would release upon uh, just many of their different prisoners, but many times it was the, the higher you know, uh, offenses that got the scourge. And they would use it as a, quote-unquote, means of purification. They would, they would assume if they beat somebody that level, they would never do that thing ever again. Whatever, that, that, whatever they had done to, you know, whatever the offense was, whatever the law that they broke, they, they had called it a means of purification. So they said, we scourge the guy, he'll never do that if he lives through the scourge. Many people would die under the scourge. Now, the Jews had a rule that you could only receive 39 uh, stripes, 39 hits with a cat of nine tails. It was in the law. But the Romans did not have such a, a rule. They would scourge an individual until they decided it was time to stop. So many times they would scourge someone completely to death, not knowing of the individual's constitution and whether or not they would be able to, you know, to make it. So what you have is a cat of nine tails, the standard instrument for the scourge. It was a whip with nine extensions. And in the end, it would have a piece of rock or metal uh, you know, or glass. And they would take the, the individual and they would stretch them out over a, like a whipping block. They would tie their hands up and stretch out the back. And they would whip it across the back so that the the whip would go around the side of the individual, would catch in their, their rib cage area, and they would pull it across, creating stripes all the way across the back. So when it says, by his stripes, we are healed, that's what it's talking about. Now what's interesting is, the Roman uh, scourge and the Roman government is, is in a most infantile state when Isaiah is prophesying. <laughs> They're nothing in the earth at that time. He's prophesying of, a, of, a, of something that they're going to employ in a future year. He says, by his stripes we are healed. The Roman scourge became one of the most feared forms of discipline there were. There was. So Jesus gets beaten mercilessly by the Roman scourge, the stripes creating, you know, a just gully of, uh, uh, the, another verse calls it, uh, furrows. Give his back to those that plow the furrows. So the, the scourge creates stripes, creating these deep, uh, you know, gullies across his back. After he's scourged, his back is a complete mess. Completely torn off. His beard has been ripped out. The crown of thorns has been driven into his head. He's been spit upon, beaten, mercilessly abused, and now he's been scourged. And they're going to crucify him in that state. Do, it occurs to me that he didn't have to be scourged. Yet he was scourged on purpose 
in the sovereign plan of God, fulfilling the prophetic word from Isaiah, he was scourged because by his stripes we're healed. We are healed by those stripes. With every lash of the cat of nine tails ripped across his back, he is paying for the sickness and the infirmities that would be put upon his people for all time. With every beating and every bruising, he's taking the sin, not just of me, but of every individual that would ever live forever. And with every stripe upon his back, he's taking the sickness of every individual that would ever live forever. And I love what Peter says about the stripes. In 1 Peter 2, he says this, himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. And Peter gives us a nugget of theology that sometimes it goes right over our radar. That We, 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 just, we just miss this point. And what I want to say is this, and I just want to nail this, and then I want to pray, is that there was a divine transfer that took place on your behalf as it relates to the issue of sickness and disease. And this divine transfer was thus, that when God was beaten across the back, and those stripes and those furrows were plowed into his back, there was a divine transfer. As he was being wounded in that manner, you were receiving healing. There was a, a uh, preparatory action for his people for all time that he was preparing for by being whipped mercilessly, preparing for your complete physical healing. It's not a spiritual healing. It's a physical healing that Jesus purchased for us in that manner. Just as he purchased liberty from sin and liberty from the bondage of sin through the bruising and the piercing, he purchased liberty from sickness through the stripes that he bore on his back. Now, as we talked last week, we talked about anchoring our hearts to the scripture and allowing the word to permeate us till it becomes second nature. And I am not mind over matter or any of that, but what I am is serious about getting this word in me until I believe the word like I believe my name. And this is something that we must, we must grapple with this issue. When the scripture says that by his stripes you were healed, we must deal with and I'm, I know I was a little graphic tonight with the explanation, but we've, it's the truth of what it was. So we must deal with the issue of this, that God took a complete, I mean, utter demoralizing beating for our healing. Now, it either worked or it didn't. And the word is either true or it is not. We must grapple with this until the truth of that explodes in our heart and we live under the revelation of this. By his stripes, you are healed. By his stripes, there is a divine transfer. You were healed. This one who is wonderful, this baby who was born to die, he didn't just take it quick so he could have done the deal and be, you know, done with dying. He goes through this brutalizing. Why? Because he's taking care of us all the way. I mean, we look at this, and it's painful to consider, but it's the truth of the verses. So I, you know what I want to do? I want to make that word. I want to get that word, and I want to allow it to stand over me and regardless of my experience and, and, and my circumstance, I want to allow the word to define to me the truth rather than me concocting a truth based on my experience. We find a lot of comfort in making up a fable that isn't consistent with the word to describe why the word doesn't work for us. But I want to get in the place where I say, no, the word is true 
regardless of what my circumstances may be. The word of God is true. It is true. Either it is or it is not. And I do not want to lighten the effect of the word of God by concocting some sort of side reason as to why it didn't work for me. I want to lock in on the word while I'm suffering with sickness. I want to lock in on it and say, no, by his stripes, Peter says, I was healed. Past tense, it already happened. There was a divine transfer. And I want to meditate on those realities until the truth of that word breaks forth with faith in my heart and it manifests the reality that the Bible says that I've been given, already been given. There are so many things that the scripture says that we have now that we just have not connected our hearts to. I love what Leonard Ravenhill said. He said, you know, we won't be one minute, we won't be one moment into eternity when we'll look back upon our life. He was having a conversation with A.W. Tozer. And he, he says, we'll look back upon our life and we'll see that we could have lived like princes, but all the while we lived like paupers, not believing the promises of the word of God. And I'm going, oh Lord, I want to live in the light of everything you've promised me in this age. Your son didn't go through that for fun. He didn't go through that. The wonderful one didn't go through that just, just because. He did it because he's absolutely radically in love with me. And he purchased something for me. He bought it for me. I want to receive it. I want to know it. I want to believe it. I want to walk in the truth of it. I'm finding that we have multiple ways that we can be healed. And one of them is just by believing what he says we've already got. Just by believing it. One of them is by believing the authority in his name. Another is by believing what the Bible says. And I want us to be a people. Oh that are so non-negotiable about the scriptures. We wouldn't talk ourselves out of them. You know, I don't want to come up with a side, you know, humanology. It's not a theology. It's a humanism that explains why it didn't work. No, I want to lock onto the truth of this thing that has more authority, the word of the Lord, and allow it to produce what it's promised to produce in me. And I want to lock onto that even going down. You know what I'm saying? If I'm going to anchor myself to something, I want to anchor myself to that, and I'll go down anchoring to it. I mean, let's just do that. So this sun that's given to us, here we are in the holiday season. Oh, we've got to remember why he was given. Oh, we've got to remember what that's about. The givenness of Christ. Oh. I don't want Santa Claus. I want the one that's wonderful. Good, let's just stand.